Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Brethren, there is in those concluding words where the angel said, just as he said, there is within those words an entire ocean of beautiful and important truth. Our Savior taught the disciples in Matthew chapter 16 that he was to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day and all was fulfilled, just as he said. We see in the promises and the fulfillment of the promises of Christ The great affirmation of this truth that Jesus Christ is indeed the promised prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, as Peter referenced in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, where he said that the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet, to him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. We see the fulfillment of what Jesus said when he spoke to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, it says that he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter into his glory. But in all these things, Jesus is more than just a prophet. Not only do we see in the promises that he made and the fulfillment of those uh, prophecies that he is a prophet, but we especially see that he is much more than this. He is, in fact, God the Son. For he also said this. He said, I laid down my life on my own initiative. I have exousion, authority, power and authority to lay it down, and I have exousion, power and authority to take it up again. No mere mortal possesses this power and authority, but the Lord Jesus Christ does. And he demonstrated that power and authority when he indeed was raised from the the grave. And in all of this we see, as was described in in the book of Hebrews, 
that Jesus Christ is in fact the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything that emanates from the mouth of God, every promise given is fulfilled. And those that have yet to be fulfilled, what do we know? They will be fulfilled. (laughs) So when the angel declared, he is risen, kathos, a pen, just as he said. We need to stop and think of the beauty of what he is saying here. Jesus promised to do this, and he fulfilled all. By the way, can you imagine being the angel who got this assignment? I think I would die of excitement over this. What a wonderful privilege, and what a wonderful confession and statement. He's risen, just as he said. Brethren, this truth reminds us of the fact that there is no variation or shifting shadow in our Lord. And our Lord is not like mere mortals. He is not fickle, constantly changing his mind. He's not a God of contingencies, whereby he is shifting from plan A to plan B to plan C. He does not receive counsel as if he was one who needed counsel. And he is not mutable such that he might say one thing one day and then another thing another day. For we are repeatedly reminded in scripture that it is impossible for God to lie. Because it is a contradiction to his holy nature. All that God promises will come true. And it cannot be otherwise. In view of this, brethren, I say this to you. As we approach this Lord's table, I would like for us to remember this point in principle. Because there's another promise that is given in reference to the Lord's last supper that he gave and issued to the disciples. In Matthew chapter 26, remember that when Jesus distributed the bread and instructed the disciples to eat the bread, to take and eat, he says, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he instructed them, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And then he says this in verse 29, he says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. What a simple and yet beautiful promise this is. It is a deeply profound and beautiful promise. Our Savior, right now, patiently waits for that day when we will be with him in glory. And he awaits that day when he will partake of the fruit of the vine with us in that great wedding feast of the Lamb of God and his bride. And we will be there with him forever. 
That same sense of anticipation that we find in our Savior, brethren, needs to be in our hearts too, especially when we come to the Lord's table. Because when the Apostle Paul was instructing the church at Corinth regarding their partaking of the Lord's table, he then concludes that instruction set when he says this in verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, finish the sentence, until he comes. Until he comes. Jesus awaits that day when we will be with him and we partake of this table awaiting the day when he comes and takes us home. Whether in Matthew chapter 26 or 1 Corinthians 11, we come to the same conclusion. This principle of longing for Christ and awaiting his return. Brethren, I believe that this is such an important meditation. When we come and we remember the sacrifice of Christ, we need to remember that he is no longer in the grave. We need to remember that he is risen. How sad it is that the doctrine of Rome heralds the image of the crucifix, which is a cross that has a a figure of the likeness of Christ on it, And this is really consistent with the doctrine of transubstantiation where literally by virtue of the priestly genuflection and incantations that are given, we're supposed to believe that the bread becomes the literal flesh of Christ and the wine becomes the literal blood of Christ. And in that blasphemous process, we're supposed to believe that Jesus is re-sacrificed again and again and again and again. But Jesus said when he died on the cross, it is finished. And the angel confessed that he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. And he's coming again. He's coming again for his people so that we will commune with him for all of eternity. And brethren, I pray that as we partake of this Lord's table here this morning, that we would have a deeper longing for Christ and for that moment, that day in which we will be with him. To help us to consider this important contemplation, brethren, let me ask you to turn to John chapter 17. We've already invested we've already invested some time in this chapter, I'm sorry. There's something about this great high priestly prayer of our Savior that is so striking. And I'm sorry that we're just kind of taking samples from it because it's so rich. So I hope you'll forgive me. But there's a way in which this prayer concludes that is so striking. The last petition that our Savior offers up is found in verse 24. He offers up many petitions, but this concluding petition is so striking because here the Savior says this. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, 
Be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Now, there are many layers to this text, but I believe that this will help us to think about Christ's awaiting for us, his longing and his patient awaiting for us to be with him in glory. Here he cries out to the Father that we would be with him where he is. This is how the Savior concludes his prayer. And very simply, all that we're going to be looking at are these three components. We're going to consider our Savior's desire that we would be with him forever, his desire that we would behold his glory, and his desire that we would be enveloped in the love of God forever. In a sense, this is exactly how he concludes his prayer. It is beautiful. It is precious. I believe it will help us to think about this privilege that we have to partake of the Lord's table confessing his death and doing so until he comes again because we partake of this table awaiting his return, longing for his return, longing for that day when this petition will be fulfilled. And brethren, it will be fulfilled. So look with me at this text and consider with me this beautiful statement given by our Savior where we learn about his earnest desire that we would be with him forever. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Be with me where I am. Hendrickson, William Hendrickson is right when he raises the question. He says, can anything equal the ineffable tenderness of this final request? What a beautiful final request this is. Father, may they be with me. I want them to be with me. The ones whom you have chosen from before the foundation of the world, whom you gave to me, I want them to be with me. Matthew Henry says that this expression of this prayer intimates that we shall not only be in the same happy place where Christ is, but that the happiness of the place will consist in his presence. This is the fullness of heavenly joy. There, the very heaven of heaven is to be with Christ, there in company with him and communion with him forever. That's our future. This is the very future of which Christ prays. I often say that heaven is so heavenly because our Lord will be there and we will be with him forevermore. You know, brethren, we're so easily and frequently occupied with the cares of this world, and we all admit, I think, that it's so easy to do so. And Satan would have us to be preoccupied with the cares of this world. But we must resist this and focus our eyes on Jesus and know that he has prayed for us that we would be with him forever in eternal glory. When he uses this word, and I'm using, my translation has the word desire. Some translations have the word will, where I think it's the King James Version has it this way. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. The Greek word is the word thalo. It can be translated as either will or wish 
to give the idea of one's passion or desire from within. Semantically speaking, this word can be translated either way depending upon the context, and context is key, but but this word thalo reminds us of the relationship of the will and the desire of an individual. Now for us as fallen sinful creatures, sometimes our will in our mind is in conflict with our desires. In fact, we're oftentimes filled with conflict from within. Many times we plan on doing many things, but we don't always have the desire to carry out the very ideas that we have in our minds. But the sinless Son of God has no conflict with respect to his mind and will. William Hendrickson again says this, he says, This type of desiring is not weaker than willing. It is useless to object to the translation I desire and to say it is that I will is better, the Greek thalo is here used and combines the delight element in the verb I desire with the deliberation and determination element in the verb I will. You see, there is perfect unity in the will of God and his desire, unlike us. And here Jesus gives the fullness of the expression of that unity of his desire and his will. The thing we have to understand is is that the will and desire of the Son of God is equal to that of of the Father. There's no conflict between the two. And it is his desire, his will, that we would be with him forever without end. There are no more petitions remaining in these verses. This is the concluding petition. It is the climactic petition that our Savior offers up. He wants his sheep to be with him forevermore. Spurgeon says this of these verses. He says, every time a believer mounts from earth to paradise, it is an answer to Christ's prayer. For this reason, brethren, we must remember that death is merely a portal. We need not fear death. You know, it's a striking statement that is given to us by the psalmist in Psalm 116 and verse 15, where the psalmist says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. When you diagram it and look at the basic construct of the sentence, literally it says, death is precious. I don't know how often you wake up in the morning and think, oh, death is precious. Well, if we understand that it is a portal that brings us home, then we can confess that. And in saying this, Christianity is not a death cult. We're not looking for the event itself the pain of death, all that is being stipulated here by virtue of Scripture is this, is that death is no longer our enemy because death has been defeated. And now death, as I just said, is that portal through which and by which we go home. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and faithful came up to the very precipice of entering into the celestial city. And yet they saw this great river between them and the gate that led to the city. 
Bunyan says this, I further saw that between them, that is Christian and faithful, and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge to go over it, and the river was very deep. At the sight of this, the pilgrims were stunned, but the men that were with them said, you must go through the river or you cannot come to the gate. What is the river? The river is a symbol of death. Bunyan, being the careful theologian that he is, then says this. The pilgrims then began to inquire if there was no other way to the gate. Yeah, who, who really wants to go through the experience of death? To which they answered, yes, but there hath not any, save two, to wit, Enoch and Elijah, been permitted to tread that path since the foundation of the world, nor shall until the last trumpet shall sound. Translation, there's no getting around this. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to despond in their mind and look this way and that, but no way could be found by them by which they could escape the river. But there's no fear in this. There's no fear in going through the river because this is the portal and pathway by which we go home. Our Savior has triumphed over sin and death, and now death is merely a door that leads to this eternal abode whereby we will be with our good shepherd, shepherd forever and ever. And we will, we will behold his glory because this is a part of his petition. And this brings us to our second point in observation. Not only does Christ earnestly desire that we would be with him, but to this end that we would behold his glory. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Think of this. We talked about this last Lord's Day. What a privilege it is to behold the glory of God as his children. And to behold the glory of God in such a manner that God mercifully reveals that glory and we survive the experience. Because as he said to Moses, no one can see me and what? Live. To be exposed to the fullness of his glory would be a death sentence to any sinner. But God in his mercy reveals his glory in such a manner that we live. And in Christ, we see that greatest expression of merciful revelation of his glory. The Apostle John, when he saw the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, he saw that Christ's eyes were like a flame of fire. His voice was like the sound of many waters in Revelation chapter 1. And it says this, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And John says this, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Our Savior is the victor and champion over sin and death. 
So when John was ushered into that scene of worship and exaltation of Christ, in Revelation chapter 5, he said that he saw a lamb standing as if slain. Whereby we see that Christ in glory showcases the reality of his sacrifice as the one who is the lamb standing, that is living, and yet he had been slain. So the heavenly praise that goes up to this worthy lamb comes in verse 12 of Revelation 5 where the, the saints of God pray uh, uh, praise him and say, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Brethren, what are we going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be with him, and we're going to behold his glory. And we're going to be engaging in the privilege of worshipping him forever and ever without end. That's what we were created to do. When John saw the great multitude in Revelation chapter 7, he says, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. You know, brethren, I often think to myself, nobody's going to get bored in heaven. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, there are all kinds of conversations and speculations about what heaven is going to be like. But we are going to be caught up with this remarkable view and perfect view, without the veil of sin, of the glory of our Redeemer. And it will be literally breathtaking, but not to the point where we won't be able to praise him. Years ago, I had a telescope, a Schmidt-Cassegrain 10-inch telescope. That thing weighed about 80 pounds. Every time I pulled it up and set it up on a, on a tripod, I thought to myself, do not drop this. Um, this is not a cheap telescope. But it was powerful, and we were able to see these remarkable deep-sky objects. We saw the Ring Nebula, M57, which was a favorite of mine, one of my favorites, the Orion Nebula. But I think one of my favorite sites was M31, the Andromeda Galaxy, which we believe is something like 110,000 light years in diameter. Now, your mind nor mine can really comprehend that. 110,000 times 6 trillion would be the number because a light year is 6 trillion miles. So as soon as we do the math on that, trust me, this is a number we don't understand billions of stars within that one galaxy and this is just one galaxy amidst countless galaxies in the universe. When I first saw the Andromeda galaxy and I contemplated its magnitude, it was literally breathtaking. I remember having that childlike shock and amazement at the fact that I'm looking at a galaxy right now. And as stunning and as striking as that experience was, brethren, I assure you, all that would be dwarfed 
If we had the experience of John of being cast into the presence of this glorious and risen Christ, we too would become like a dead man. And in eternal glory, without the veil of sin, we will see him as he is, and we will be like him. These are incomprehensible thoughts and ideas, but brethren, this is our eternal future. So when I have conversations with people, and listen, I get it and I understand, people will say, well, what are we going to do in heaven? What kind of foods are we going to be eating? What kind of sports, recreation are we going to have? What kind of entertainment are we going to have? I don't know that these are going to be important conversations. I think we're going to be so caught up with the glory of God that all this kind of vanishes and melts away. Whatever else we we may do in heaven, I believe that we need to understand and remember that the centerpiece of heaven is the Lord of glory, and we will be with him, beholding his glory, and worshiping him forever and ever without end in view of the revelation of his glory. So that when the 24 elders, the representatives of the body of Christ, we see in heaven, in Revelation chapter 4, it says that the four living creatures, and each one of them had six wings, which are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Of course that's true, because everything that God wills to be done will be done. Not a single one of those elders are going to take their crown and say, No, this is mine. I earned it. They cast them all before the the throne of God. All glory to you. All praise to you. Charles Spurgeon, before passing from this life into eternity, from his bed read excerpts from a sermon on Psalm 73 and verse 28. And also from an exposition of Matthew chapter 15, 21 through 28. And then he had those who were with them sing, the sands of time are sinking, the hymn. We've sung this once before. You remember the the verse that says this, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That's our future. This is the future that our Savior prayed for, for us. This is his desire, his will, that we would be with him that we would behold his glory and worship him forever. Brethren, there's no greater privilege given to a, a creature 
to be able to behold his glory, his awesome glory, and to do so as his children is an unspeakable privilege. Sadly, the damned will behold the glory of his wrath and will taste that forever. But we will behold his glory in view of his redemption and praise him for it forever. So our Savior prayed that we would be with him, that we would behold his glory, and that we would be enveloped in the love of God. I say this because if you consider the concluding petition that he gives, again, beginning with verse 24, but reading through verse 26, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, Yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me, and I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. Brethren, here again, it is impossible to comprehend the fullness of this. But consider what Jesus is saying here. The very love with which the Father loved the Son from before the foundation of the world for eternity, that very same love is now in our hearts. This is the very love in which we are enveloped ourselves, such that we now are lovers of God and lovers of one another. This beautiful Trinitarian love of which Jesus speaks is now a part of our lives and will be forevermore without end. In the covenant of redemption whereby the plan for our redemption was established, everything had at its center this Trinitarian love. The Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, and God's love for his people such that we would be enveloped in that love forever and ever without end. This is heaven. And there's nothing greater than this. Brethren, as we prepare for the Lord's table, let me offer a few exhortations before we do. How remarkable it is that our Savior prayed that we would be with him, behold his glory, and be enveloped in the love of God. As the angel said concerning the promises of Christ, he said, he is risen just as he said. There is no disconnection between the promises of our Lord and their fulfillment. We give promises all the time, and sometimes we fail Many times we have the best of intentions, but we are incapable of fulfilling all the promises that we give. But God never fails in this. And so I say to you, brethren, God has declared and has promised that we have been justified by faith, Romans 5, 1. And we can say, it is finished just as he said. 
Do not carry around the guilt for sin that Christ has forgiven you for. If he says that you have been forgiven of sin, and if you have confessed that sin to him, remember that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and it is finished. But if you carry the weight of that sin around as if it is not finished, you are contradicting the one who has forgiven you. Do not do that. Do not carry burdens of guilt that are not yours. If the Savior has taken that burden of guilt away, give glory to God and rejoice. We now have peace with God in view of this justification. Again, Romans 5.1, just as he said, the enmity that once existed has now been removed forevermore. This is why we can partake of this table. This was not our table before the Lord redeemed us. But now by his grace and mercy, this is our table. This is our privilege as the disciples of Jesus Christ. And I say that if there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry to say this is not your table. This is for disciples. This is for the followers of Jesus Christ. But I say to you with that, Even now, you can place your faith and trust in Christ. Trusting in him for your salvation. Trusting in him for forgiveness of sins. And if you do that, then I do encourage you to partake. Because again, this is for believers. And just as he said, we're now the children of God. We're his possession forever. We won't only exist in heaven as servants, we will as as such, but we will be servants as those who are members of his eternal family. And just as he said, he has gone to prepare a place for us, an eternal heavenly home, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to take his people home, and he will accomplish all this just as he said for he who said I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom has never broken any of his promises and he never will and so brethren in this moment of time let us remember our crucified risen and returning savior let me ask the ushers to come forward that we may partake of this table. The ushers would please come forward.